Hello and welcome back to the 26th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series and the final episode of the series too. I'm your host Adam Scully and we've another exciting episode for you all today. It's over. 32 teams flew to Qatar and battled it out over the course of a month to see who the best side in the world truly are. Only one came out on top. Argentina are your world champions. The Albiceleste won the competition for the first time since 1986 and in the first rendition of the tournament since Diego Maradona sadly passed away two years ago. For the first 79 minutes, it looked as though the 2022 final was set to go down in history as one of the most mundane and lacklustre finals of all time after a serially below-par performance from the reigning champions. However, a rapid Kylian Mbappe brace sprung the game to life and the match was deadlocked 3-all after 120 minutes. Argentina won on penalties, as they so often do, to win the World Cup and put the champions to the sword. Quite a lot happened in this game, and there's so much for us to unpack. But to do so, I'm joined by TFA analysts Alfie Pearson and David Ostil, as well as Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliate Lucas Mondelo, as we look at the tactics from the game. But before we get into the tactics from the final, Lucas will be speaking to us about the betting market during the World Cup. And so we advise that you always remember to gamble responsibly. Also, if you're listening to this, could I kindly ask you to rate the podcast five stars, hopefully, if you enjoyed the episode or if you enjoyed the series as a whole. Now, I'll stop waffling. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, David, Alfie, thank you so much for joining me today to review an absolutely bizarre World Cup final. Um, David, I want to start with you and just a bit, a bit of trivia. Kylian Mbappe scored a hat-trick in the World Cup final, despite losing. It was the last player to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Best. It was indeed when England won the World Cup in 1966. Unfortunately for Mbappe, uh, a hat-trick was not enough to win a World Cup because they still lost. Uh, incredibly enough. Alfie, we'll start, first of all, before we get into the absolute chaos, we'll just start with France and how poor they were, especially in the first half. I think second half, maybe they got more control of the ball, especially. First half was was actually um, diabolical. It was a crime against my my eyeballs. Talk to me about what went wrong then for France, and uh, tactically anyway. <laughs> So I must say that I think the illness in the French camp did impact that performance. To me, they weren't 100% fit. Uh, it was the same starting eleven that faced England, but it was a comparatively lower intensity from them. The system generally has a reliance on maximum effort from quite a few people uh, for the overall stability due to Mbappe's minimal defensive help. And they have struggled at times throughout the tournament, and they did in the final as well. So they then dropped in and trusted their penalty box defending a bit more. But against Argentina, they still just weren't compact enough. Poor, poor distancing in the press. We saw the usual 4-3-3, 4-4-2, asymmetrical shape with Mbappe staying high and then Dembele dropping off a bit. Yeah, in the first half, it was very unsuccessful, the French press, but they did improve after the substitutions. That was interesting that they went with, because I mean, they haven't really pressed high throughout the tournament. And then all of a sudden against Argentina, on the grander stage, they decide, right, let's press. Because... When writing the preview for um, TFA as a third party with another publication, and I mean, I think did Kyle, Kyle wrote the preview for TFA alone, and he also spoke about France's front line are very susceptible to being 
broken through in terms of like you can easily play a ball through and if Messi drops deep you can play the ball into space behind the first line of pressure and then Messi turns and he's able to wreak havoc and who better to play that role they, they, they're poor in a, the front line are poor in a low defensive block back cutting passing lanes behind them so why did they Sean think it was a good idea to push them higher higher up a pitch especially with or higher up the pitch especially with like um, Olivier Giroud who's not I mean he wouldn't be my you know the leader of my press, essentially, albeit he's a wonderful player. I don't think he's much of a, a pressing player at 35. Well, we saw Argentina try to build up with three versus two, but then, then forced France to commit another man into their attacking line. And then Argentina had a, an overload with four versus three in the midfield line. So it was sort of just going against each other with that. The wingers were okay at having. Molina and Tagliafico in, in the cover shadow sometimes, but other times they're easily penetrated. And I thought Rodrigo de Paul was excellent. He played a bit of a deeper role today, or yesterday, to progress possession, allowing him to receive and then turn and find Messi. He played 10 passes into Messi, which was the highest of any Argentina player into their number 10. And I thought off the ball, he was incredible as well, providing balance in the midfield. And that same goes for Renzo Fernandez. He played the most passes and the most tackles out of anyone on the pitch. David, Argentina's lineup was announced, and Angel Di Maria, a very controversial figure in modern football, was in the starting lineup for Argentina. Many believed he would be on the right side because that's where Mbappe doesn't defend, basically, and Mbappe, or Di Maria then can run at Theo Hernandez. Interestingly, he was on the opposite side and he kind of was running at Usman Dembele, and obviously we'll touch on that in a second. That went well, basically. I suppose. Were you surprised with his selection in the team and were you surprised on maybe the role he was given in, in Scaloni's system for the final? I wasn't surprised that he was in the team um, because he he's a he's the type of player that can play almost in a free role. So he can sort of play on the wing, he can cut inside, he can play in a 10 role that he did at times um, when he was at Man United. Um, so I wasn't surprised because I think that gives him a, a bit more freedom which I think really lent itself to to what Argentina were doing um, in the final, which was, you know, they were they were sharp, incisive passing, players moving around, all working together. Um, so it, his inclusion kind of fitted with what they were trying to do in their game plan. Um, so in that sense, no, I wasn't surprised. Yeah, it, it, um, I wasn't surprised either. Maybe that he was on the left, obviously, I was a little bit surprised. That, but I think Di Maria regardless of my own personal uh, opinions of him, is still a wonderful uh, footballer. And, you know, he still has a lot to offer on the flanks. Ultimately, he won the penalty for the fourth goal. I think Argentina's fifth penalty in the tournament. And it was converted in the end and Argentina take the lead. Lucas, things went terribly wrong then again for France and they found themselves 2-0 down through Di Maria. And it was a... I think Liam Brady on Irish TV said it was the best World Cup final goal he's ever seen. Um, Liam Brady's in his 60s. I, I'm surprised at that admission, but again, it's probably the best I've seen, but I haven't seen that many, especially since I think in 2014, and 2010, 2006, there was like a goal or two in each final. Um, but I'll come to you, Lucas, then on, 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 on Deschamps' decision to take off Olivier Giroud and Ousmane Dembele. It was a bowl call two of France's best players, the two incredible footballers in their own right. 
he made a big decision because it's likely, well, I'm almost certain it's Giroud's last ever World Cup appearance and he took Giroud off. And it kind of begs the question, is, well, was, well, essentially, was he right to take them off? Because while they eventually got back into the game, which we'll touch on in a minute, not much got better for France and second half, they didn't really pose any threat still on the goal. Do you think he was a bit, I suppose, quick to take them off, maybe a bit reactionary, or do you think it was the right decision? Well, I think the call there was kind of similar to what happened with Argentina after the Saudi Arabia game. You you, you have situations when the manager simply has to, you know, pass on a strong message to the team. So perhaps, let's say, the benefits of that weren't just technical. It was perhaps, you know, also a way to shake things up and say, hey, guys, if this doesn't change immediately and this is you know, a couple of first half substitutions. So wake up or we are dead. I think this is also a factor here. And uh, one could argue that perhaps without you so, you know, centralized and, and fixed in that region of the pitch, Mbappe could kind of circulate more and surprise the mm-hmm. defense of, of uh, Argentina, you know, more often. So I think if you consider how bad things were going and, and the end result in, in the you know in regular time, it wasn't that much of a bad decision, but uh, it, it didn't change things radically, you know, in a strict technical point of view, I guess. It is quite humiliating, though, just in terms, just for the players. And I don't mean to sound disrespectful to them, but of course, being taken off a of minute 40 in a World Cup final, hundreds of millions that are watching know it's because you've been bad. That is quite humiliating. You know, in the biggest game of your life, you're coming off because of how poor you've been. Um, and I'm not saying Deschamps made the wrong call. I'm just saying it. it's kind of... It is a little harsh on the players because ultimately, like, you know, sometimes maybe the, the, the scene can get to them and, you know, maybe he, he was a bit reactionary. But again, he also was looking at the team and what they they needed in that minute. And he obviously felt that a change was necessary because they were 2-0 down. Alfie, what are your thoughts then? But I thought both of their performances were quite disastrous, to be honest. I think mm-hmm. looking at the, the FIFA Plus data, uh, Giroud had eight offers to receive and ended up only receiving zero times out of the eight. And I believe he completed two passes as well. Uh, Dembele had a very, very poor game. Lots of his touches just weren't up to scratch and his passing was poor as well. And I thought that all the substitutes made an impact a lot of them down to their 1v1 dual inability to give France any chance of regaining possession and then sustaining pressure. Um, Coleman as well, he had a, a great game. I'm a big fan of him and his intensity with Turam and Coleman. He gave, gave French press a new life and then they could gradually begin to sustain the pressure and prevent Argentinian progression. Um, it's a bit strange because at Gladbach, Turan's very direct attacker, lots of dribbling and looking to get inside Goal the Goal scoring record is phenomenal this season for Mojo Yeah, Genuinely, it's, it's wonderful. But I thought yesterday his performance was quite selfless and him and, and Bafé on the left side, there's always going to be a threat. They're so dangerous. Mm-hmm. And Colin Mwani, absolute dual monster. Had such an impressive performance yesterday. Uh, he's been brilliant at Eintracht Frankfurt since joining the summer, developed his all-round game much more of an effective creator and dribbler. And that cutting edge is still just missing, but I'm sure that will arrive soon. And he won a penalty as well off, off Otamendi. 
He did. Um, and you're right, Colin was excellent at the time. He was pretty good against Morocco. Obviously, he scored. But this season for Frankfurt, uh, Frankfurt he's, I think he has something like eight or nine assists. I mean, it's crazy. He's, he so might I think be, he's got nine in the Bundesliga. Yeah, he's, I think goals, he's leading uh, the assist charts in the Bundesliga for centre-forward. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> which is only, pretty Only Musiala has got more goals and really? assists combined so far. Wow. That really, that, that, I mean, that's excellent. And again, I... I I've only heard of uh, Colin Moani this season because of his excellent performances and him. You know, then he was called to the French national team. I think he was a late call up for an injury to Benzema. Is that correct? I believe so. Maybe young Kunku, potentially. It could have been. It was definitely a, a late call up anyway. And well, he's done wonderfully, obviously, since since joining David. It may have been Didier Deschamps' last ever World Cup match in the dugout. All the reports are claiming that Zinedine Zidane is the favourite to replace him. Zidane, of course, was at the game yesterday as a guest of FIFA and not the French FA. However, David, uh, I suppose what I want to ask you is, do you think Deschamps' time is up? Do you think it's run its course? You know, again, it sounds strange because they got to a World Cup final and were penalties away from lifting the crown, but they are for a second consecutive time, making him only the second manager in history to do so. But it's just, I, I just feel like international management does have an expiry date eventually. And a lot of the French players are now kind of getting on up there. And Varane is, you know, I think he's hitting 30 and Giroud's 35. And there's a lot of players like, you know, coming towards the end of their careers. Do you think it's maybe time that, that the French FA gives gives someone else a, a run at the, of trying to kind of bring home? Well, the Euros will be the next tournament. Um, yeah, I mean, before we get on to Deschamps, I, I want to say that I think well, what I thought went wrong yesterday was the fact that they they finally got exposed, if you like, for those injury problems that we heard about beforehand. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, for me, the battle was won in the midfield because DePaul and Fernandez and um, McAllister were absolutely brilliant. Griezmann was nowhere to be seen. Um, you know, the, the, France in that central third looked looked poor. That's for me where the battle was won. And, and that came down to me to, the, to them missing the likes of Kante, Pogba, those sorts of enforcers, if you like, those presences in the, mid, in the midfield. I just felt yesterday that they were missing that. Um, and and that, the reason that brings me on to Deschamps is because a lot of people probably look at that and say, well, he got it tactically wrong. And, and yes, it, it, to an extent he did, and he did make the changes. But actually, if you look at it, and you look at the way that they had to set up for that, it was almost like, this is all I've got now. This is, you know, this is my squad. I'm missing so many mm-hmm. key players. So in that sense, you have to look at Deschamps' record and say he's got them to a second consecutive World Cup final with a lot of key players missing, for which he deserves a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, does he does he deserve to stay on or does he need to go? Well, it's in the balance, really. I mean, Zidane obviously has a great record as a manager at a club level. Is he going to deliver on, on international record? We don't know yet, but, you know, he might. But I, th- I just think, actually, you look at Deschamps' record when it comes to major tournaments like the World Cup, and actually, he's delivered on, on the world stage as far as the World Cup goes. You know, he's got he's one, got one year and he starts final. the final. Exactly. Does Do France need to change? Probably not. Do they want to change? Well, that's a different matter. Um, and maybe they are looking to just freshen things up, bring some new ideas in and try a different approach. In which case, you know, you, you go with it because that's everyone needs to change every now and again. Like you said, management, particularly international, does have an expiry, expiry date. And some managers do get to the end of their reign and you think now it's time to go. You look at Arsene Wenger, you look at 
you know, Alex Ferguson was able to keep going. He decided it was it was enough. So, you know, it does come to to the point where you think enough's enough, and maybe that's it. Maybe France have come to that stage. Yeah, and it, it does seem harsh that we're discussing this because ultimately, like he's got to a second consecutive World Cup final, which is truly a, a, an incredible feat by any manager on the on, at the World Cup. But again, as we said, international management is kind of different to club management because the, the rotation of players is so constant. Like his next international call-up or the team, the squad selection, if he stays in charge, could be so much different than the one that just went to the World Cup. You know, and then they, those players don't perform for him because they don't, they're not used to his management methods or, you know, things can just go so horribly wrong at international level. And if he has a stays at the Euros and he has a France of a stinker again, like in 2020, you know, again, people will be calling for his head like they were in 2020 when, or last year, sorry, when the Euro 2020 was on. Um, Anyway, it hit halftime. Second half starts and France are on top, albeit not really. I mean, they had the ball, which is better than the scrappy. first half. So let's round of applause for that. It was much better than the first yeah. half, but it was very, still very scrappy. They yeah. still didn't really create chances. I think one of the only chances they had was Mbappe hit kind of a, a shot from nearly outside the box and it ballooned over the bar. And that was it. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, this is the world champions. Alfie, I'll come to you though first. You know, actually, we'll skip ahead then to, I suppose, the 79th minute because this, things didn't really change that much. Kingsley Coleman wins the ball back off Messi, I believe. Is that the first goal? Yeah. That's the second goal. Oh, is it second the second goal? goal? Well, then it, the fourth then was the, of course, the penalty. And then it's 2 1, and Bappe slots it away nicely. I think Martinez got his hand on it. Second goal, Kingsley Coleman shrugs Messi off the ball. They go forward. Mbappe doesn't take a touch because why would he when you're that good? And he scores. And then everything changed. I mean, Pep Guardiola talked about, I was listening to an interview of his before, he talked about momentum. And it's the one thing he's terrified the most of in football because you, you just can't control it. What went wrong for Argentina, really, uh, even though they won the World Cup, because it just flicked like a switch. Do you think as well he should have brought Martinez, Lissandra Martinez on? I definitely think Martinez was a sub. When Dimi went off, it changed everything. I thought we would see the back five that Argentina have used regularly at the tournament. And when Acuna came on, I thought we would see Tagliafico shift to left centre back and that would be the five. But instead, Acuna was more of a straight swap rather than the left wing back. Argentina did drop off. Through into a into more of a, a deeper four four two block again. Yeah, I thought Lissandro would be the sub, making it the five. I thought Acuna was quite poor as well when he came on. But it's a substitution that Scaloni has trusted before in the in the Copa America final. Acuna started at left back and then Tagliafico came off the bench, and both of them were on the left side. And obviously they managed to hold out against Brazil in that final. Yeah, to me Lissandro would have been the the correct choice, but. Again, I think it's just moments, isn't it, with momentum. Yeah. So some stuff you just can't can't deal with, especially with conceding two in two minutes. Everything just goes against against you. You know, physically, mentally, it's you've just got an uphill battle, and it's just about holding out then until the night and seeing what can change. Mm-hmm. I think in extra time, the first ten minutes there might have been a bit shaky again, and then I had two more chances at the end, and then it completely switched to thinking. Argentina aren't going to do this and then it changed to they've still got a chance now yeah and I think just touching on Martinez 
I think against Croatia, I believe, when they were 2 0 up, he swapped Paredes for Martinez and then it went from the 4 4 2. Well, it wasn't really a 4 it was a 4 4 2 one by name, really. It wasn't in practicality, it wasn't that, of course, but he switched then to a five at the back and Martinez slotted in. They score an extra goal, finishes 3 all. You know, you, Scaloni has shown to be very tactically flexible at the tournament because, as I said, they were winning and then he, 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 he changes to bring Martinez on for that extra security at the back. I think, in my own personal opinion, that the reason he didn't bring Martinez on or Martinez on was because, like we all thought, that game was dead. There was no chance that France were getting back into the match. No chance. There's no point bringing Martinez on. We can get a third here or a fourth and really kill them. It obviously, in hindsight, turned out to be quite naive. Alfie, you have some final thoughts on that then? I think what we were mentioning before as well about Coleman, Turam and Colomani offering a whole different level of intensity. I think with Sandro's ability on the ball to retain possession would have just helped them out a lot more. And we saw Paredes eventually had that impact. I believe he had all 15 of his passes were completed and that, that did help Argentina just to keep the ball a bit more and rather than just allowing France to just sustain all the pressure. Yeah. And I know it sounds quite mundane, um, quite like poor punditry essentially but Martinez is obviously five foot nine, and I don't mean to rehash this debate because you know it sounds kind of ridiculous he is still very good in the air but as you saw against the Netherlands when they brought on Luke de Jong they brought on Bootveghorst they started going direct they started putting crosses into the box Martinez can't deal with someone who's six five and aerially, aerially, aerially proficient he just can't and I don't mean to sound disrespectful I think obviously he was looking at it as if if he had a start of Martinez, you know, he has Giroud versus Martinez and that's a horrible battle. Because Giroud would, as you saw against Harry Maguire, would be, and Harry Maguire's strengths are in the air and he can be Harry Maguire to an aerial ball. So I just don't think, I think Martinez and Giroud would have been a complete mismatch. Not that Otamendi and, and Romero are tall either. Like, you know, six foot one, I think each. Um, so again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Lucas, Argentina started the tournament as one of the favourites in the eyes of the betting market. They were never favourites until, I think, after France beat Morocco, which is strange. I think it was just that night, because you'd think France would then go back to being the favourites to win the tournament. They didn't. Argentina stayed on top. I think Drake put a lot of money on Argentina to win, and Drake is notoriously a very poor better. But Argentina did win, so he's after making uh, a nice bit of money for himself, albeit he's not poor. Um, talk to us about, I suppose, Argentina's run to the final and how they, they fluctuated in the eyes of the betting market, especially after that opening loss to Saudi Arabia. Well, for starters, I guess it's important, you know, out of respect for the true professional bettors to mention that uh, what Drake has been betting... <laughs> Is peanuts comparing to what guys bet, you know. Are you saying Drake's not a professional? Regularly. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in terms of volume, I mean, one million pounds or euros is nothing in, in a World Cup. You can easily have like yeah. Moog, 30, with, it, with, it, with it millions. Million. Yeah, dozens of millions sometimes, depending on the fixture and depending on the batcher, even mm. up to hundreds of millions in a single game. So it's like, uh, yeah, I, I find it amusing that people think that this is big betting. But <laughs> anyways, Argentina had the 
interesting um, an interesting performance in the outright market because they started with odds in the house of seven and mm -hmm. then they fluctuated of course after the saudi arabia fiasco because there's no other name for what happened there they obviously had different odds and then as they started to progress across the knockout stage they ended up you know with odds close to two before the final which is natural and I think that the only moment they were really the favorites was when there was the other pending semifinals. So, you know, there were teams with one more game to play and they had already guaranteed, you know, a place in the in the final. So naturally, that's the mathematical consequence to what happens. But I, I guess Argentina only really underperformed in the markets. In the first game, which is something funny and that will get me into an announcement that I have to make, Saudi Arabia had actually, you know, the smallest odds to win the game, their game in, in the entire first round of the World Cup. It was 19 to 1. No other team had, you know, bigger odds than that. And they brought it home, which was impressive. So as I was mentioning, we're now starting a new brand in the Running Dog Media family called Total Football Betting. You have the website totalfootballbetting.com, and we are releasing reviews for the betting performance of all 32 teams in the World Cup. Some of those are already live, and um, by the time this goes live, it, many others will be live, and by Tuesday, all, all of these links will be available. We have lots of new websites. And at Total Football Betting, you have all the links to these uh, new interesting places to read about the betting performance of all teams in the Cup. And listeners, trust me, Lucas is working tirelessly behind the scenes. So please do check out Total Football Betting if you are listening and you're interested in betting, I suppose, too, or learning more about the betting side of the game. Lucas, as well, just before we move on, in our World Cup preview, we spoke about a, an interesting bet that uh, you could win a lot of money if... Mbappe had more left foot shots than Messi. You would have lost your money. Actually, I didn't even check the results for that one, to be honest. I think counting the goals was already hard enough in this game. Yeah. <laughs> David, while I've touched on Mbappe there, let's, let's, let's stick with him. He's 23 years of age. He has 11 World Cup goals. The record is 16, held by Miroslav Klose, who uh, I think he, he, he broke the record when he was 36, maybe which is, or is around the 35, 34, 36, can't remember which age he was, but it was towards the end of his career anyway. Um, Mbappe is only five goals from equaling it, six from breaking it, and he's probably two or three to decent tournaments left in him. He truly is a, a joy to watch, and I think as we watch Messi kind of bow out of the international stage, maybe now, albeit he didn't confirm it in his, in his interview yesterday, I think it's fair to say that Mbappe is going to take the is going to take the torch from Messi to be as the next, I suppose, greatest in the world for of his generation at least. Talk to me about Mbappe then, because he he was quite poor actually for seventy nine minutes, but then he just rung to life and was electric. I mean that finish, by the way, for the second goal when the weight of the world is on his shoulders to not even take a touch to just volley that on that the first time. It's just unbelievable. Confidence, doesn't it? He's a he's a confident guy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's he's such a special player, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, 
as as one superstar bows out, another one basically for the second year in a row lights up the the international stage. And I think we've we've got the joys of Mbappe for yeah years and years to come, barring obviously any serious injuries, which no one can tell because no one can predict the future. But um, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt he's going to break that record. I mean, when when we, when closer got. 16 goals and we thought that's that's going to be tough to beat but Mbappe just goes from strength to strength doesn't he and I think it's his versatility as well that's worth mentioning you know he can play in that centre forward role or he can do what he's done for France during his tournament he can play off to one side and then cut inside and you know he can work with with teammates as well so um, you know his movement means that he can play in a freer role as well he can sort of drop back get the ball move it forwards um, you know we saw something that France have done uh, during the tournament is that they push the fullbacks forward as we know Hernandez and, and uh, Kunde as well to, to some extent but then Mbappe's not back to the cover so they're almost in those sort of rotational positions um, so Mbappe really can drop back into different roles he can play in that centre forward role as I said he can play to one side he's, he's, he seems to have everything um, as his feet but also just just every single skill you think someone in his position needs he seems to have and, and that goal yesterday was kind of the icing on the cake as far as that's concerned you know you just saw the technique the timing the uh, concentration the finishing ability he's got it all so yeah. so yeah absolutely I think as as Messi bows out Mbappe his his star continues to rise and I can see quite a Cristiano Ronaldo-esque projection in his game in terms of as he gets older and he'll probably lose the speed he'll become more of a centralised number nine because he's excellent in the air you know, we saw against, uh, I believe it was Australia. You know, he's he's so so good in the air, and it's, it's quite an underrated aspect of his game. He's a truly wonderful talent. Just before we wrap up, though, after what was a, it was definitely the best World Cup in my lifetime, albeit strange. I think, in the backdrop of a very controversial World Cup, uh, politically, and just in terms of obviously uh, human rights and nothing that I can add that people don't already know about. In terms of the actual football, it was pretty fun. You know, I think, and David, or, or, or Lucas, sorry, I'll come to you on this. Scott Martin, who is with uh, Velez now, as a, I think he's one of the head scouts at Velez, apologies, I don't, I don't know his actual proper role. He uh, wrote a tweet probably months before the World Cup about how this, because this is the first World Cup kind of mid season where there's no, chance for players to get, get rust because usually the World Cup's in the summer players have a couple of weeks where they've they're kind of out of matches and they may pick up you know a bit of uh, rust in terms of their playing in matches this wasn't really this World Cup didn't allow for that they were just you know playing Burnley one week and then bang you're at the World Cup a week later do you think that's what made it such an exciting World Cup or, or do you just think it's because more of us are just at home watching it now because we've nothing else to do I think it's more like the second one because personally, <laughs> personally, I'm a bigger fan of the Champions League than World Cup because at, at the club level you can practice and you know um, you have better football in my opinion. So if you get the Champions League finals in the last times and the World Cup finals, you have a very different you know level of quality. So I, I, I'm not alone when I kind of see this i guess because I, i've i've heard across many countries journalists complaining that lots of games in the group stage were you know very poor quality 
So yeah, of course, things intensify in terms of fun in the knockout stage. But still, if you compare, for example, you know, how solid the team of Argentina is compared with, I don't know, Real Madrid or mm-hmm. any other big team, not just you know, the, the title holder in the Champions League, you have a gap of quality that's undeniable these days. So I believe that uh, international football has some, you know, question marks for the future. And um, that that also applies to, you know, controversial situations in terms of um, what what countries should have, what players. I'm not, you know, uh, getting much into the politics of this, but uh, there's debate, of course, at some countries between the fans, especially when players miss penalties like it happened with France. Again, we, we have some sad situations like Kingsley come on of no facing racism. So mm-hmm. how much would that affect the future in his head to defend France and, and what happened with England in the Euros? So I think uh, international football has some challenges for the future that uh, club level doesn't. And it affects what happens on the pitch. If a player like Tony Cross isn't really interested in playing in a World Cup, that happens for a reason. The fact that players in Europe don't get vacation to, to, to participate in the summer tournaments. So I, I've been observing these things for a while. So of course, when when it starts, the World Cup will get excited, even about smaller things like, uh, in, in this World Cup's case, to me seeing Bale playing for the first time with Wales. Even these things get you excited because of the history of the player. But uh, in terms of making it an interesting tournament, I think uh, the knockout stage kind of made it improving the eyes of the public. But uh, I'm really glad that we have the Champions League back in, I don't know, two months-ish. <laughs> we do. We're literally straight back into the football now at the weekend, the uh, club football, which is incredible. And I'm talking about like the elite level. But, uh, you know, I know Manchester United play this weekend or this Monday against Burnley in the League Cup or, or Wednesday or this Wednesday it is it's crazy the World Cup just ended and we're already uh, straight back into the club action in just two days just before we wrap up though I, I want to uh, pose a question to you Alfie positional play and kind of the conventional ideology we believe positional play is that has been the dominant force in football since 2008 probably when Guardiola first came or first became the Barcelona first team manager. As as I said, it's dominated the stage on the in Europe and and, and you know domestically as well. It kind of took a beating at this World Cup. Argentina don't use a conventional positional play system. They're very ball oriented. Morocco far from a positional play system, and they were. I mean, we saw against Spain in what was a great tactical battle of low block defending and counter-attacking versus that really disciplined positional play and it crumbled. They couldn't break Morocco down and they went bowing out and they were a failure ultimately in the tournament Spain after what was such an exciting start. Do you think this World Cup has kind of been the catalyst for a shift in how teams will start to play in the future? I think this again could go back to the debate of knockout tournaments as opposed to to league play. Mm-hmm. I think Morocco, again, perfect example. Uh, Spain, most people would say some of their performances at the beginning were very impressive, but 
didn't get in them far. Germany, I think their expected goal difference was way above anybody else's after the group stages, but they got knocked out. It's fun. I think, again, it's, it goes back to the moments of knockout stages mm-hmm. where it's about certain things in transition and positional play. Maybe if he had more focus towards limiting the transition, then we could see that. I think, again, it's maybe going back to club football now. I think uh, Erling Haaland moving to Manchester City, we could see in the Champions League now how they might try and move towards not a fully transitional game, but we might see more elements of looking to be more potent in, in attacking transitions through him, which will be really exciting to see in the knockout stages. Unless, we don't know, maybe they will just try and retain possession, death by a thousand passes again, like Spain tried to do this tournament so yeah, I think overall the tournament has been really good for tactical, tactical diversity and flexibility um, it's been quite a strange tournament to be fair I think after the group stage we were looking at potentially the lowest scoring 32 team World Cup in history and instead the knockout stages from out of nowhere just exploded with goals and we ended up having the highest scoring World Cup ever with 32 teams so, yeah, there's some brilliant narratives, like Lucas was, was saying before, Messi winning the World Cup, Arabic nation, Morocco and African nation doing so well in the tournament in in an Arab country as well. I thought that was really, really good to see. Even in the final as well, I was really glad that Messi and Mbappe both scored their penalties in the shootout after their brilliant performances. Yeah. And really impressive for Mbappe to score all three penalties against Demi Martinez. I think he's probably the worst goalkeeper you could possibly face in in a shootout, especially in, in that situation. I would yeah. hate to face him. And com- well, comparatively, Hugo Ruiz has quite a poor record. And Montiel as well, going from, from zero to hero, conceding the late penalty and then scoring the winning penalty. I think you summarised the tournament, not only the final, but the whole tournament there perfectly better than I possibly could. I think we'll wrap up there Lucas, David, Alfie thank you so much for joining me today and throughout the tournament you were all very regular uh, you know guests on the podcast especially Lucas you were on with me most days I think you definitely hit over 20 I'm guessing episodes in, in, in total so thank you so much for joining me to all the listeners at home I hope you enjoyed too and thank you so much for your continued support throughout the tournament we hit numbers we genuinely didn't think we could reach growing the podcast exponentially and so I can't thank you all enough For the final time in our month-long World Cup series, thank you all for listening and goodbye for now.